Are you a high-performing real estate investor who's looking to further elevate your performance? If so, download our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits by joining our insider network at elevatepod.com. This guide created by yours truly has the power to put your transformation on autopilot and exponentially change your trajectory. Go get your free copy now at elevatepod.com. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting down with America's number one money mentor, Chris Noggle, today. You're going to learn a lot about how the wealthiest families across the country for generations have looked at money. You're going to learn about how the most prosperous families, the most prosperous individuals have behaved with money. And I'll tell you this, 95% of people either don't know about this or they don't behave in this way. So now you will have the opportunity of understanding the way that the wealthiest families behave with money and how they treat money and their mindset around money. And you also learn that this is not really that complicated. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. If you're listening to Elevate Podcast, you already have a huge reference for education, personal development, financial education, and real estate investing. And today we're going to stack on top of that. We're going to take things to the next level. So I want you to buckle up. Today's podcast is phenomenal. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I am a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. Before we dive into this amazing interview with Chris Noggle, I want to encourage you to pay it forward and share this with a friend, share this with someone that you know is new to your network, someone that you've just met, maybe someone that you've known for a long time that may or may not be aware of Elevate Podcast. That's a fee. And just to pay it forward and share this, grab the link, share it on social media, send it in a text message, an email, whatever you need to do to pay it forward. I encourage you and ask you, please, please, please to share Elevate Podcast. It's the only way that we can grow. It's the only way that we can continue to attract amazing people like Chris Noggle and otherwise. I also want to ask for your feedback. I'd love for you to please shoot me an email or shoot me a DM at Elevate Pod or email at info at elevatepod.com. What do you love about Elevate? What would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? What would you like to learn from our guests or what are types of, what other types of people or conversations would you like to have? I want you to have ownership in the future of this podcast. So I'm asking for your feedback. Send me an email at info at elevatepod.com or a DM on Instagram at elevatepod. And also my last ask for you is to give us a rating, a review and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast from wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. It's very, very important to us. I really appreciate your feedback and it's, I, I, I read every single review and we want to make this amazing for you. So please go ahead and do that right now if you have a chance. And with all that said, I want to dive in. I want to introduce you to Chris Noggle, who from pro snow, snowboarder to money mogul, Chris Noggle has dedicated his life to being America's number one money mentor with a core belief that success is not built by the resources you have, but how resourceful you can be. And by the way, you're going to see this in action from his story today. 
his success and national acclaim have come in part uh, in large part to what he's learned firsthand from seeking a better way to wealth creation and preservation than he learned growing up. Chris has built and owned 19 companies with his businesses being featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and his very own HGTV pilot in 2018. He is currently founder of the Money School and Money Mentor for the Money Multiplier. His success also includes managing tens of millions of dollars in assets in the financial services and advisory industry and in real estate transactions. As an innovator and visionary in wealth building and real estate, he empowers entrepreneurs, business owners, and real estate investors with the knowledge of how money works. We're going to learn so much about how money works today, and, and I want to invite you to buckle up for that. Chris is also a nationally recognized speaker, author, and podcast host. He has spoken and taught to over 10,000 Americans delivering the financial knowledge that fuels lasting freedom. Freedom. Without further ado, please enjoy this amazing discussion with Chris Nago. Chris Nago, my friend, welcome to Elevate. How are you? Good, man. Good. It's an honor to be here. Man, I am so excited about our conversation. The first time you and I sat down, it was like, all right, hold on. Where has this friendship been over the past 10, 15, 20 years? Because I think we both had a lot of fun. So I'm excited about sitting down with you today and learning together, exploring you know, some new corners of our mindset that I think we can expand and, and share that with many other people as it relates to money, as it relates to wealth and beyond. Because I think you, like me, recognize that you know what? Today's day and age, it's it's not about running from a lion or, or or you know being chased by a cheetah. It's about money, and it's about you know. I think that today, if we can elevate our financial education and our financial resources, that we can then sort of make more decisions. It's not about having more money and creating more happiness necessarily, although certainly life is easier and, and less challenging and less you know filled with heartache uh, with with more money. So, with all that said, Chris, um, that's my long winded way of saying, hey, I'm excited. Uh, so tell me a little bit about sort of, uh, your backstory, your upbringing, uh, give us a sense of where you came from and, and then, you know, look forward to having a great conversation. Sure. You know, I, I grew up like many other people in a lower, lower middle-class family. My mom raised me, my dad was an alcoholic and, uh, we didn't have much. So when I wanted things, it wasn't like I could go, Hey mom, I want this skateboard. Hey mom, can, can we buy this snowboard? Hey mom, can I have this dirt bike? That just wasn't that wasn't even a conversation. My whole upbringing as a child was from a scarcity, a money scarcity mindset, which I think too many of us were brought up to not talk about money. We're brought up to think money is, uh, you know, just kind of this thing we should never discuss, but that's, that's the scarcity. And when I wanted things, I, I remember I was just a dreamer. I'll just use a dirt bike. There was one point where I, I, fixated on this dirt bike. It was a KX60. I remember I had every magazine cut out that I could have. I draw it when I was in school. I, I literally got to the point where I would dream about this when I went to sleep. That's how real this thing was to me. And it wasn't for many years later that I ended up getting it, but how I got it is my mother taught me some very simple things. Actually, she taught me one of the laws of wealth without knowing what the laws of wealth were. She taught me that we have to save or keep some of the money that we make and how she would do it when she needed a lawnmower, she had a giant glass jar, like with this wow. little thing on the top. She'd take her extra change and dump it in that thing. And when that thing say, you know, had enough, she knew that that was a few hundred dollars and that is how she bought the lawnmower. Well, she one day gave me this black box. I still have the thing. It's a little black slider. I don't know, one of those, I don't know what they use them for. She said, when you make money, Make sure you put some of it in this black box for the things that you want. Go-karts, mini bikes, this dirt bike. 
So I did this. But what I did is I did it without counting it. You know, some people would put it in there, they'd count it, which motivates you to want to spend it because you're like, oh my God, I got this. And oh, I could just buy the skateboard instead of the dirt bike. And I didn't do that. My mother kind of took this box. And when I got money, I gave it to her and she put it in it. And then I'll never forget the day. You know, I was working on a farm. I was 14 years old and I, I did some part-time work at a restaurant over the summer. And I gave my, I did this. I just gave my mom whatever money I didn't need for gas in the dirt bike. Cause I had a dirt bike, but it was just like a more of a mini bike. Uh, and I gave it to her. And one day she said, Hey, let's go to Hebler's, which was the dirt bike store. And let's look at bikes. And I'm like, well, of course, why would I say no? So we drive out there. And I remember she's like, well, you know, why don't you test drive one? And I'm like, Oh no, I can't afford it. And she said, no, just, just ride it, you know, figure out which one you would want. And that way, you know, when you, when you have enough money, you can buy it. My mother was very smart hmm. in how she did this. And I went out on the side and I rode the RM and the KX. And I remember I loved the KX. And I'm like, mom, this is the bike that I would buy. I love it. And at the time I had grown past the 60, I was a 125. And she said, well, what if you could have it today? And I said, oh, mom, I don't how. And she says, well, you know, that money you've been saving, you saved up enough money. So do you want the bike? And that was like where like the rubber met the road. It's where my dreams finally had a way of actually materializing. And, and ever since then, the rest of my life has been kind of that, you know, my next big dream was to be a pro snowboarder. And I live in Buffalo, New York. It's not the Mecca for snowboarding, but I wanted it. So I was willing to do what everybody else was unwilling to do. And the long, the short, long story is I ended up becoming a pro snowboarder and it wasn't easy. I didn't have money to go to the resorts or travel and do all these things. So I had a country club by my house. And it was built in a ravine. And in a ravine, there down the hill, there was sand traps. And I watched sledders go down this and they would jump the sand trap. And I'm like, hey, wait a second here. I could build a jump out of the sand track, trap and learn my tricks that I watched in the VHS tapes and saw in the, in the magazines. So I did this. And I, I learned very quickly that the only time I could do this was after school. And I had about two hours before it got dark. And I always seemed like the second I started to get warmed up, mom was there honking the horn to pick me back up. I'm like, come on. So I realized I had to get in better shape. So I'd go home and I'd run up and down, up and down the backyard. We had about an acre of land. And I did this in the snow to get in shape. So that when I went to that sand trap, to that, that hill or ravine, whatever you call it, to practice, I could run up the hill and get more runs. This is like the basis of pretty much everything in my life. Because at a young age, I built these, these habits, these, these ways to accomplish things that everybody else told me I couldn't. And Gosh, that, that could be, you know, when 16 years old rolled around, I uh, had a big boy job that I hated at a restaurant because they degraded me. So I quit one day. I quit trading hours for dollars, not knowing that that would have literally been one of the last times I ever worked for somebody else. And I came home and I said, hey, mom, I want to start a clothing line in the basement. I started my first company. And then that company then materialized. And then I wanted a store because in the travels of selling my clothing line, I saw all these shop owners that own these skateboard snowboard shops. I'm like, I got to have that. Well, to get that it took 70 grand. Again, scarcity mindset. I don't have the money. I can't do this. But then I said, well, how could I figure this out? I started learning about, it's not really about your resources. It's about how resourceful you can get. So I went around and tried borrowing money. Everybody said, no, but I got a bank that said, maybe. They said, if you can find collateral, kid, we'll give you this SBA government-backed loan. And I'm like, cool, what's collateral? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what collateral was. And they're like, something to uh, a value that will securitize this $70,000 loan. I said, well, I got an 86 Buick. I got some baseball cards and I got this dirt bike. Is that good? <laughs> no. My mom uh, ended up seeing this dream dying and she put her house on the line. 
so that I could chase that dream. And Batman Board Shops, P-H-A-T, became a thing in November of 94. It was one of the most miraculous days of my life. And then I ended up running that store and had lots of up and downs, lots of nights crying on cardboard boxes in the back of the store, wondering how I was going to make it and how I wasn't going to lose my mom's house. And uh, yeah, that store is still open today. I sold it in 10, but I did have hard times, man. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the money guy today. So all up to now, you've heard I'm a snowboarder. So how does a snowboarder go from snowboard to Wall Street? Well, it's a unique story. And it started uh, when the planes hit the tower in the early 2000s. The, the dot-com recession kicked in. And I realized for the first time in my life what a recession was. Because up to that point, like so many people today, I had never seen anything but a bull market or good times until this event. Today, most people don't remember 2008. They're too young to have really had an, that, to have an impact. So they've lived in this fantasy world of what we call a bull market. And when the recession hit me, I realized, holy crap, business was down 30%. I couldn't afford my bills and I had to get a job. Little Caesars, which is where I thought I was going to land, delivering pizzas wasn't hiring. So I put my resume out. Now, remember, I'm uh, at this point, I'm in my early 20s. I'm a pro snowboarder and I had no knowledge of much of anything. Very limited college. All I knew was running my skateboard, snowboard shops, a little bit about business, and I was a pro rider. So when I put my resume out, the only idiots that called me back were Wall Street firms. So I ended up interviewing, got my first suit with a zip-up tie because I didn't know how to tie a tie, and uh, that's how I entered Wall Street. And In Wall Street, here's a, a unique kind of thing that will set up mindset. Remember, everything in my life I had to work really hard for. I had to you know, so, quote, you know, so I guess the way to say it would be, I, I had to do what other people were unwilling to do to get what I wanted. When I got in Wall Street, I was in the bullpen and I'd watch the guys on the outside, the glass cubicles, and they'd come in at nine o'clock. They'd leave an hour, two hours for lunch, and they were gone, 4.35 o'clock when the bell rang. And I'm just like, really? This is, this is what these guys do? And they're making almost a million dollars a year because they posted the numbers. And I'm just like, all right, well, I'm this young kid. I don't have a family. And I want what they want. So what should I do? Well, find a way to get what they want faster than it normally would take. And I found out that all I need to do is do what they're not doing. Get there at seven o'clock, get my paperwork done so that I don't waste time during the day. Then, you know, during lunch, make phone calls while they're out having lunch or cocktails or whatever the hell they did. And, you know, people answer the phone during lunch. And then after, you know, they would leave when most people are getting home from work, I pounded the phones and I got people on the phone because they were home now from work. And I did this consistently and persistently, and I became one of the top three advisors. And uh, I, I literally don't have a secret. It's not like I was some whiz kid, not some you know great financial advisor at this point. I just did, I put the time in and I cared about people. And yeah, so that brought me up to, oh, wait, I don't know if you want me to pause there because the rest just goes downhill for a little bit. <laughs> Man, well, first of all, there's so many lessons in your background, which are fascinating. And I love that you started with just the background of sort of recognizing that there was a money scarcity mindset that was shared with you kind of early on in your life. And, and there's a lot that you uncovered through sort of your growth, not only as an entrepreneur, a pro snowboarder, and then sort of that challenge that you, that many experienced in 2001, of course, you know, after nine 11, after the dot-com burst and then continue to grow. But there was a gift in that, that circumstance or those circumstances then brought you into wall street. And then you started 
to see how money works, right? How, what's actually happening in the real world in terms of the financial markets and so forth. And I'm sure we'll go down the path of, you know, not only maybe the abundance mindset and re- the real wealth creation mindset. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but let's keep going on this path. Cause I, I don't want to miss sort of the rest of the story here as you continue to through the next cycle, 2008. So pick it up from there, Chris. Yeah. And I want to be clear, like up to this point, I did still have a very, very much so a scarcity mindset. I was making more money. You know, I was making a couple hundred grand as an advisor up to this point, but I, I didn't know how to keep money. You know, I'd learned by my mom how to keep money. You know, I'd save a little bit at this point. I'd lost it because I just got caught up in that, that thing. We all get caught up on. You make more, you spend more, you make more, you buy the nicer car, you make more, you get the bigger house. It's just what I did. So I, I saved a little bit of money, but I spent most of everything that I made during those years. So it was the first time in my life that I'd had real money. But I, I'd also in 06 done my first flip and learned some really hard lessons on that one. I thought, oh, hey, I saw it on TV. That's how I got into this. I saw a TV show of a house that was flipped in 23 minutes. I'm like, I could do that. And I had a little extra money or so I thought I had enough to do it. And I dove in and I bought a house. Me and my best friend went to flip it. And it was supposed to be like a $40,000 profit. I think we made eight grand after a year and a half of monkeying with this thing. And then in 07, I did another one, a quick, easy one that we made maybe 10 grand on. So I got the bug for real estate, but then 08 came around and I was crushing it. I, I was at the pinnacle of my financial advisory career. I was the number three guy in the office, which I always doing is chasing number one. And uh, that was that competitive spirit. And I remember uh, I bought a strip mall right next to my, my key fat man board shop. And I wanted to move into this, this um, building that I bought, which was a dilapidated paint store, because I said, why am I paying rent to this guy? And he just raised my rent when I can just, you know, have other people pay me rent. So I began the, the process of learning how to develop property. Now I had no experience in this. I had a, a guy that was in a network meeting that knew how to do this and he helped me tremendously, but I borrowed money from a hard money lender. And then literally, as soon as I got into this project, you know exactly what happened. Because I told you when I did this, and it was a right time and a wrong time. And I thought I was going one direction. And all of a sudden, the Great Recession hit me like a Mack truck. And here I am going the opposite direction. And I almost went bankrupt. I got down to one payment to this hard money lender. And I was it. I was done. I had exhausted every penny that I had. My 401k was max loaned. Everything, all my life insurance policies that I had were max loaned. I had nothing. And I came home one night and my, my girlfriend had just moved in. I said, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And by the way, my friend Pete's going to move into that bedroom and my friend Jessica is going to move into that one. Any questions? You know, and uh, at that time, I guess, call it cocky or arrogant or whatever the heck was going on in my head, maybe just purely desperate. I thought I had about a 50-50 shot. I thought there's 50% chance that she's actually going to say yes to this. And there's a 50% chance she's going to pack all of her crap up and walk back out the door. Other people later told me, dude, you had like a 10% chance of her sticking around. But the good <laughs> news is I think she liked me because she's still with me. We're married. We just had our first daughter. But, you know, during that period when I lost everything, I started to kind of realize that I needed to change some things that I did. I needed to stop living in this fantasy world of like these fancy things and it didn't matter because now, uh, you know, the strip mall was the most important thing. So I started investing in assets. And once I kind of came out of this mess, which would have been 2009, I dove into real estate. I won't say full time, but I literally was still doing the advisory, but I was pretty comfortable with that. I had a great group of clients. And then I dove and put time into real estate and started buying apartment buildings. 
from 09 to 14, I got a 36 units, which to me was a monumental victory, but it was a victory that was built on a house of cards because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I just, I'd literally buy a property. I'd then, you know, finance it through the bank, put 20% down, use rent roll that was coming in to rehab units. And I did a lot of the work myself. And I got to 14, I was at my 37th deal, 37th door, I should say, took it to the same bank that took me out of that, that hard money lender and the same bank that financed them all. And they said, no, I'm like, what do you mean? You lent me on all these deals. Why no? Well, because you don't fit in a little square box called debt to income. And I had never heard of this before. I'm like, if I buy a rental, the gross rental income should count toward my income, but it does not, or at least only a percentage of it does. I failed to realize that because I, I didn't have knowledge. I never, up to this point, like so many people, and this is just another lesson, I went through life and knowledge was given to me. Whatever knowledge I had of money was because other people taught it to me. I had not gone on the journey of seeking the truth and seeking knowledge at this point. I just, I didn't read. I just took what people told me as the gospel. Well, the gospel, unfortunately, in 14 resulted in me having to sell all 36 units. Uh, I had to sell my dream house that I had bought, 171 Radcliffe Drive in Getzville. And me and Larissa split. Money sometimes has a weird way of just tearing your life apart if you allow it to. And I made money my everything because money wasn't a tool. Money was the thing that I strive for. It was the thing that I, you know, that I always made something that it wasn't. If I just treated money as the tool that it is, this wouldn't have happened. And if I seeked out the knowledge to understand how to be a real estate investor, these things wouldn't have happened either. But I went to an all-time low at that point. And at that point in my life, thank God I lost it all. I mean, I literally, this is how bad it got. I had to sell everything. I had Audis, had to sell them all. I kept one used, beat up Audi. Never forget it. That car became my favorite car ever because it was all I had. Uh, sold my bedroom set. Uh, when we sold Gatsville, literally I was sleeping on the floor. And uh, at the end of it, when me and Larissa were finally split, I actually packed a bag, a backpack. And me and my best friend, Jack, went to Thailand for a month because I, I just, I needed to clear my head. I didn't care. And uh, at that point, I thought about things and I really came back and I, I was given an opportunity, didn't even think of one, but to go to this three-day event to learn how to flip houses. And I did almost go, but on the back of the postcard, it said, you get a free iPod shuffle. So I did go because I had nothing to lose in an iPod shuffle the game. And at this event for the first time, or maybe not the first time, but like the first real time when I was willing to accept, I heard two very successful real estate investors speaking. And one of them was talking about money. And I was the money guy, right? I think I even had a suit on that. That's how stupid I was. I was like, <laughs> so in this Wall Street world that I'm like, I'm going to show up to a real estate seminar in a suit because, hey, I, maybe I'll meet, I think my motivation was maybe I'll meet a client, you know, out of some of these real estate investors. And, and I remember they talking about it and instantly my ears perk up, but instantly I'm like, wait, 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 what are these guys even talking about? This is the opposite of everything I've been taught in it as an advisor. And I'm going to get to the end of the story, but like, that moment opened my eyes to realize that I didn't know anything. I had no concept of what the wealthy did with money because these guys were very wealthy. I had no concept of how money really worked outside of the basic fundamentals, mutual fund stocks, you know, some basic life insurance knowledge. And when I go down this path with these two guys, Mike and Greg, Greg is now my business partner. Mike is a dear friend. Mike ended up lending me lots of money. And I remember there was one time I was in Salt Lake City with Mike at a cheesecake factory. And, you know, he was lending me money on one of my flips because I got deep into flipping as well. And uh, I said to him, I said, Mike, so where does all this money come that you lend? Like, 
how do you, how do you do this? Is it self-directed IRAs? And he yeah. says, no, it's my private bank. And I'm like, Ooh, Mike, you own a bank. <laughs> I'm like, you dirty dog. Come on. How do you get a bank, man? <laughs> and uh, then he tells me, he says, well, you know, it's just a privatized banking system that was created. And I did it many years ago and it's just a whole life policy. I said, Mike, dude, I'm an advisor. I sell whole life. Whole life doesn't work that way. Like somebody's lying to you. And he says, leans into me and he says, Chris, if, if somebody's lying to me, then explain to me how I've been doing this. Mm. Exactly how I just explained for years. And I said, touche. <laughs> I said, do tell me how to do this. And he says, I can't. I learned from this guy, Brent. So I called Brent up and I'm all excited. I remember I'm so jazzed up about this thing thinking, oh, I know what this is. And, you know, he wouldn't talk to me. He says, you got to watch this 90 minute video and then we'll do a call. And you know, you know, this 90 minute video well. And I said, all right, no, Brent, I'm an advisor. I don't need it. I don't need to watch the video. Let's just help, help me explain this. You know, how do I know? How do I do this? And he said, no, you got to watch the video. So I watched the 90 minute video reluctantly. And I swear to God, when I finished that 90 minutes, which went by like 15 minutes, I had cracked the code. I had seen something that was so close to me but yet so far away from me in my entire life. And I saw one concept, one change that I needed to make that would change everything. And then I had some regret because I'm like, why didn't I learn this before? Why didn't my big old, you know, brokerage firms that I work for teach me this because this is unreal. My clients need to know about this. And I later found that they don't teach this because if they did, they wouldn't have any advisors left because the advisors would have to take a 90% cut in their income in order to do what I had just learned. So to wrap up this whole story, and I'm sorry I went long. I, I don't get to tell this story often, but you know, I flipped 267 houses today. We've had a large rental portfolio, which I'm selling off most of it today down to we're at 18 units now. Uh, we mostly lend money or we're the bank. You know, the ultimate in real estate to me now is being the bank, owning nothing but controlling everything. And uh, I teach people the secrets of the wealthy and I give almost everything away for free. So that's my story. Man, well, drop the mic there because it's a phenomenal story, but there's so much to learn from it. And, and there's so many different lessons that I wanted to highlight. And one of which was you were talking about how knowledge was given to you for that for that early period of time when you were kind of building your real estate portfolio. You were up to 36 units, then 37. And then, you know, a lot of the house of cards kind of fell apart because you didn't have the appropriate knowledge. And I thought that was important to recognize that instead of being reactive with information that other people are giving you, perhaps the lesson is let's be proactive. And, and I think any of the listeners who are listening today are obviously doing that. They're being proactive in terms of the information that they're arming themselves. But then when you think about obviously walking into this world, this, this, this world of people who are applying the tactics of the wealthy or the secrets of the wealthy that have been applied for hundreds of years, or even perhaps thousands of years in some cases, I just think it's really interesting how really the, the average thought process around money is not, you know, it's, it's really, it's not the same as the elite or the above average or the extraordinary mindset or, or behavior around wealth. And so I would love to dive into what you found through that process, talking about the knowledge of how money really works. And obviously we'll, we'll dive into sort of what you talked about, about being your own bank and, you know, using this concept, the infinite banking concept and how that that might work and, and why that might be important. But let's start with how money works. What did you experience and what did you learn when you stepped into this world? Well, you know, up to that point, you know, like I said, I was just given the information, the advisory firm taught me what they wanted me to know. They molded me into the perfect salesperson. 
for their products and services. And I was very good at it, but I never actually realized that what I was selling and what I was doing wasn't what the, the successful, the wealthy were actually doing with money. I just assumed that, well, they taught me this, this must be what, you know, all these big guys do. And I, I could have, it's, it's a shame. And I'm sure, and I'm saying this because I'm, I'm ashamed of it in my life, but I also know a lot of people are in the same place. All I needed to do is pick up a book and learn. Like I lost all 36 of those units. Think about that right now. You, you know, your audience is real estate investors, I would assume. And, you know, think about if you could take a time machine, that DeLorean back to 2009, and you could buy apartment buildings back then. Do you realize they were like 60% at, well, by today's standards, they were 90% off. And if you still had those today, what would that mean? Well, I'll never know because all I didn't know is I didn't know that when you take out mortgages in your personal name, although the mortgage interest rate is cheaper, which is how it was taught to me, go with the cheaper rate, there was a limit. And the, the most you can ever do on con, like conventional mortgages, which is what I was using, was 10. Okay, I never got to 10 mortgages because I never could. The debt to income ratio that they use will never allow you to get there. It's fixed against you. Had I just learned one thing that all I needed to be doing was using commercial loans, you know, borrowing in the corporate name. Oh, but that costs more money. Instead of the mortgage being 4%, it would have been six and a half. No, don't do that. Why pay more interest? The interest rate doesn't even matter. It's the velocity of money that matters when you're talking about mortgages. But I was so caught up in the same thing most of your listeners probably have been caught up in. And that was just a number, an, uh, an interest rate that meant nothing. Scarcity mindset. One. Dude, that's money. exactly what it was. And, and I, I battled this scarcity thing my whole life. When you literally focus on something, it usually runs away from you. When you, when you, you know, make money an object, it runs away from you. When you chase money, it runs away from you. Money only finds you when you find the truth about money. And, you know, like there's so many things I learned from these wealthy individuals. Well, the wealthy individuals don't give up control of their money like we do. When we make money, we go out, I'm just gonna grab a visual, we, we make $100. We, we are taught to go out and work for this $100. Whether you're self-employed or whether you work for somebody, in your mind, don't lie to yourself, you literally exchange an hour for money. And then our whole lives, how much are you worth an hour? Oh, I don't know, I'm worth 100 bucks an hour, right? That's a good rate for you. You are underpricing yourself if you set a million dollars an hour because you are putting a value to your time and your time is, there is no value of your time. Your time is priceless. And I didn't understand that. So I'd always make money and I made good money at that time, but I would give up control of that money when I made it. I would take that money and I would do what with it? I'd put it in someone else's bank, not thinking anything of it. I'm like, oh, well, that's just where we're supposed to put our money. And then I would take some of it through my advisory company and I would put it in the 401k. Oh, grandma told me when I get a job, put it in the 401k. Oh, you guys match too? Great. Give me some more of that stuff. In doing that, I was taking my best dollars today. This $100 will never be worth more than it is today. And I then took it and I gave it to a 401k company or put it into the investments in the 401k where that money has to sit for 5, 10, 15, 20 years until I can use it at 59 and a half. Or I take that money and I put it in the bank account where they pay me next to zero. And then all of a sudden the bank takes that money and does what I should have known to do and moves that money. Because last time I checked folks, does the bank take your money, your deposit and put it in a little box, like my little black box that I used to use in the, in the safe? Did they, did they take that and put your money in the safe and just leave it there till you come back? Nope. They take that money and the second it goes in there, 
It's going back out the door. The bank moves money. We are the only fools out there who have been taught to give up control of our money and leave it sit because it gets weaker and weaker. The government loves it. It's inflation. It's a hidden tax, folks. You don't know that. It's your money evaporating without you having to do anything. It's not that gas got more expensive. It's not that food got more expensive. It's the government taxing that money through a hidden tax called inflation, which they indeed create. Then after that whole thing, I started like learning that to actually be you know a good steward of your money you need to do the same thing a bank does you need to move your money but that wasn't easy for me because i was so used to taking it popping it into something and just leave it sit let it do its thing there but you know what how many opportunities do we give up because our money is put somewhere where we can't get back control of it a 401k maybe a cd maybe one of those investments like oh god annuities those are awful but you know where the money's just got to sit for a set amount of time in someone else's control and then all of a sudden that huge opportunity comes and oh man i wish you would have caught me last month i had the money but then i put it in this i can't get it back out sorry man and then all of a sudden you hear later that that company went on to be a hundred million dollar company you could have been a 30 percent owner with whatever money you had i'm just painting examples and I started to learn that what I needed to do was start treating my money the same as what the banks, you know, how I treat the banks money. I had to move it. Now, let me, let me prepare this a different way. And I've been kind of trying to find the best way to explain this. But let me just ask you all this. If you owned a restaurant or even a couple restaurants, would you eat at your restaurant? That would be where you'd frequent quite often. You'd eat dinner there a lot, right? You would. What if you owned a hair salon? Okay. Would you get your hair done at your own hair salon? you would at your business. If you owned a gym, would you go to your gym and work out? Freaking of course I would. It's your business. If you owned a business, you would attend and go to your business for the things you need. So now let me pose you the question. If you owned a bank, if you owned a bank, would you bank at your bank? Would you make deposits into your bank? Would you then take money and use money from your bank? When you needed money for something like a piece of real estate or a car, would you not borrow money from your bank? And when you borrowed money from your bank, you would treat your money the same way you used to treat the other bank's money, right? You would charge interest on that money because your business has to be profitable. So you would then pay your bank back with interest as well. You would do all the things you do today with someone else's bank, with your own bank, because you own the bank. Of course, you're, it's your business, duh. So why don't you do that? Is the question I propose. Now, maybe you don't have your own gym, so you work out at somebody else's. Maybe you don't have your own restaurant, so you eat at other restaurants. Maybe you don't have your own hair salon, so you, you, you know, get your hair done somewhere else. Totally get it. But why doesn't everybody have their own bank? Oh my God, Chris, I, I can't afford to buy a bank. You know, buy, you know, that's the big boy stuff. No, it's, it's been being done for hundreds of years, creating your own banking system. Sure, it doesn't have to be a brick and mortar. A privatized bank doesn't even have to be a business. It just has to be you learning how to treat your money the same way you treat the bank's money. Find the right machine, the right vehicle to run your money through so your money's always working for you and earning interest. And I, my favorite thing is not just compound interest. Albert Einstein loves that, the eighth wonder of the world, the most powerful thing in the universe. But uninterrupted compound interest because I am done with the days of taking my money and putting it somewhere and just leaving it sit because I've been taught to believe that that's what I have to do to earn compound interest. I got to take my money. I got to put it somewhere. It's got to stay there for me to earn interest. Hogwash. That is absolutely not true because where on my bank, I put money in it and I can take that money back out and never interrupt the interest that I'm earning on that money. And then I can go buy real estate. I can go buy cars. I can do all the things that I just described that my bank 
would do if I owned one. I just happen to own eight of those little puppies. And then I have a partial ownership in three on my wife and two on my mom. But what is this bank? And if it's so easy, why doesn't everybody do it? Because who the heck is going to teach you how to create your own bank when there's really no money in it for them? Well, your financial advisor's not. Oh, your premier banker? Yeah, walk into your premier banker and ask them to help you set up your own bank. They will, they will escort you out the door. <laughs> Or here, here's what we did. We just did this. Me and Joseph, who's uh, one of our money mentors, went into Bank of America. He did. He had a bunch of money. Like he had a suitcase full of 100, oh, it was over 100,000 bucks. And he sat there and he, he said, listen, I've got all this money that I want to deposit in this bank, but I have one thing I need this bank to do for me. And you know, I guess he, he tells it better than I do. But he's just like, he, he, they were so excited. Oh, yeah, yeah. What do we need to do, Joseph? We, could, we have so many products and services at this bank. I'm sure we can facilitate. He said, perfect. This is way easier than, a, than what, what you think. All I need you to do is put my money, this, this suitcase full of money, the same place the bank puts their money. Did you know that Bank of America told him they can't do that? <laughs> like, and you guys all think that there's not a problem out there. There's a big problem. And the big problem is you are literally taught to give up control of your money. And that's where the problem starts. You're defying the laws of wealth in doing that. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital. And you know how much I love real estate and how it can be a vehicle towards creating any outcome that you want in your life, which is really why we created CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety for our investors, for our partners, and for the people that we serve. Our team leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors like you with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. Our philosophy is that we can elevate communities together through this process. And I want to invite you to go check out cfcapllc.com because we have a free ebook that's called the bottom line, the 10 ways to increase cash flow in an apartment complex. And I want to tell you that this is a value packed ebook. So I want to, want to invite you to go check that out right now at cfcapllc.com. I think you're going to get a ton of value just from reading this, whether you apply it to your own business or whether you educate yourself further on what it would look like if you invested with CF Capital. So go check that out at cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com and enjoy the rest of the show. Man, I'll tell you what, and it's 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 so eye-opening when you gain real financial intelligence and real financial knowledge and you understand how money works, how the banking system works in this country and around the world. And you think about fiat currency, you mentioned inflation a few times, and I think that it's very critically important for all of us to understand what's actually happening. It's not about prices rising, it's about purchasing power declining. And so that's a critical kind of foundational principle to understand, but it's also important to understand velocity of money. You've mentioned that a few times. You mentioned velocity of money. You've also mentioned moving your money, making money work for you. And you're talking about the sort of having your own bank, right? And, and keeping money instead of giving up control. It's about bringing that control back and allowing this velocity of money to then support various you know things, whether it's your lifestyle, whether it's purchasing certain things that, you know what, as much as we want to, you know, be sort of, uh, 
uh, you know, we want to hold money back and we want to just invest. Yeah. There's things in our life that we have to, or want to buy, whether it's vehicles, you know, home things for our home, things for our life, whether it's vacations or other things, or you want to invest in real estate. So you can do it the old fashioned way and say, Hey, I'm going to go and get more money. I'm going to go earn more money. I'm going to trade my time, my energy, my effort for more money. And then at that point, then I'm going to, you know, put that down on a deal or I'm going to invest alongside someone else, which, you know, perhaps that's step one, two or three, but step four, five and six is now kind of what we're talking about. So you mentioned when you were a uh, financial advisor, you sold whole life insurance. But now when you met this other individual at the real estate conference, this was a different type of whole life insurance that allowed this individual to become his whole bank, his own bank to allow this money velocity to then work for him in such a greater way and create uninterrupted compound interest. So what was the difference and what is the difference between what the average financial advisor sells versus what you see the wealthiest families in America and around the world use? Great question. And it's a very important one because a lot of people, when they hear this and they hear, oh, it's a whole life policy. The first thing they do, they call their person, their insurance guy, and they say, hey, I need one of those whole life policies. Then I just heard this amazing thing. They get the illustration and they're looking at it and they're like, uh, so I'm going to put a hundred in and I'm going to have no money in year one. I'm going to have no money in year two. I'm going to have barely any money in year three. This cannot be the same thing that guy was talking about. And indeed, it is not. The whole life that I'm talking about, although it might be the same chassis as what they sell, it is designed and engineered completely backwards. And, and Dave Ramsey, you know, I love the guy, but I also feel bad for him because his ego has gotten so big that he is unwilling to learn anything new. He has literally arrived at some level of success where now he can't ever imagine that he doesn't know everything. And that is the most dangerous place any human being can ever get at where you've arrived and you think you know everything. Because I'll tell you where Amen. you go from there, back down to the bottom. It happened to me because when I was an advisor, oh, I thought I knew everything. You saw my roller coaster. Dave Ramsey is there and he thinks he knows everything. He knows a lot about whole life and him saying that whole life is the worst investment you know you could put your money into is absolutely 100% correct. It's not an investment. It's guaranteed. Then he talks about it and gives a bunch of things. He doesn't even understand how we design them. But you know, here's the simple thing. What's different between the regular whole life and the whole life that we design for our clients is engineering. No different than if you take Ken Block, rally cross rider, right? One of the world's best rally drivers. He, he raced for Ford motor cars. Well, he raced the Ford Focus, folks. You ever seen one of those? You ever go to the dealership and look at one? Not too sexy of a car. Just saying. I mean, hey, they're, they're efficient. But then you look at the one he drives, and you're like, oh, 130 miles an hour in full control, sideways around a turn. Man, my Focus doesn't do that. But that one was engineered and designed to do that. You see, a whole life policy is nothing more than a contract with an insurance company, a contract with some very unique riders and ways that you can modify it, just like that Ford Focus rally car. So what we do is we modify the contract in the way that it operates. Most people buy whole life for a death benefit, money that somebody's going to get when you die. We design it so that there's the lowest death benefit on it, which means the lowest cost. And then what we do is we stuff the most amount of money, our premium deposits, the amount we save in a, a bank account or a 401k, we just change one thing. And that's where our money gets saved and is held. And we put it into this specially designed whole life. So we got a ton of money going in, the lowest death benefit. And then the only thing in the middle that we need to kind of fulfill is the IRS's requirements, which basically says you need X amount of death benefit to put X amount of dollars away. So then we figured ways to construct the whole life policy to maximize the efficiency 
and access to your money. Because if you're going to create a banking system, don't you think it would make sense that if you deposit money today that you have access to it immediately in the first 30 days when your check clears? Well, you're darn right it does. That's how a bank account works. That's why we use one. So I didn't invent this, folks. This has been being used for hundreds of years. The especially designed and engineered whole lives have been being used by the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the JPs, the Morgans, Ray Kroc, Walt Disney started Walt Disney World, Doris Christopher with Pampered Chef, Warren Buffett, Joe Biden, McCain. I mean, I could go on for days with people that use this, but yet, oh, why is it that no one understands this? Well, because all those people use it because they got to a certain level where they didn't need to take advice from an advisor. The shit, that's the wrong word. They'd probably take advice, but their advisor would give them the right advice because they weren't just chasing commissions. I know when I was an advisor, I loved selling whole life because I got a big old honk in commission. But if I was selling that same whole life designed the way that I'm talking about, I wouldn't be so excited about the commission because it would be 90 plus percent less. So I wouldn't really care much about the commission. I'm like, ah, but now today, this is all we do as a living. We design and engineer these for thousands of people. So it's a scale thing for us. But the difference is very minor. It's just how the plan is designed and what it's designed to do. Because if the goal is banking, well, you can't build a policy that's maximizing the death benefit. You've defeated the purpose because now the cost is too high. We minimize the cost, maximize the money going in. And because it's life insurance, the IRS has, <laughs> I got to be careful how I say this, but if you read the tax code, there are some really, really beneficial things that life insurance provides when it comes to building wealth, like the internal buildup is tax-free. The other thing too is the money that you take out, even if it's all gains, is taken as loans. You've never paid tax on a loan. When you take a home equity line of credit from your house, do they charge a tax on that equity you took out? No, it's a loan, you gotta pay it back. Well, we take loans from these policies. And when we take a loan, most people think of a loan as something that's gotta be paid back. But these loans never need to be paid back because all the insurance company's doing is looking at that small death benefit we put on there and saying, hey, listen, we will loan you part of your death benefit. We'll leverage the death benefit and give it to you today. You can use that money. And if you never pay us back for the loan, actually, we'll never ask you for that money to come back. Then we're just going to subtract it from the death benefit the day you die. And what that does, that gives my money, my premium deposits that I put in, i.e. cash value, the ability to just sit in my account and earn a guaranteed interest rate plus dividends, which by today's numbers, 2021 is 6%. So I'm making 6% on my money when I'm using it. Imagine if you had 100 grand in your bank and you went to your bank and you took 100 grand out, hypothetically. And then you went and you invested that 100 grand and you made 10%. But imagine if that 100 grand that you just took out, imagine if the bank said to you, hey, listen, when you take this money out, we're just going to kind of give it to you as a, a loan that never needs to be paid back. And we're still going to pay you interest on that money. Isn't that kind of cool? Merry Christmas. And then they're just like, hey, we're going to charge you interest on that loan. Of course, they're, you know, they're a bank and insurance companies don't do this for free. They charge an interest rate on the loan you take out against your death benefit. But the interest rate you pay on the loan is less than the interest rate they're paying you. So if you learn anything about spreads, you know, I got to be careful saying arbitrage, but you know, the difference free profit, essentially, but we'll call it a spread, is what you're making. So you get to use your money while still making interest and dividends on an uninterrupted compound interest fashion. And you get to go out there and make more. So then it really just comes down to, are you going to be an honest banker? So if you're going to be, create your own bank, you're not going to go to your bank and steal money. In other words, you're not going to take money from your bank and then go blow it on foolish things like we do so much today. We make money, we go buy the, the fancy sneakers. We make money, we go buy the bigger house. And we never ever think anything about, well, maybe I should treat my money the same as I treat the banks. 
So when you use this money, you should always think of it as your borrowing money. Like I said earlier, you're taking a loan from your bank and you're going to then pay your bank back. But the coolest part is, is if you owned your own bank, it wouldn't matter that you pay your bank back. It wouldn't matter that you pay your bank back with interest because you get all the money. All the money ends up in your bank, which you can use the next day, the week after, the month after, the year after. And the best part is it's always going up and it can't go anywhere else because of just a very simple concept called compound interest. And if you don't understand it, just Google Albert Einstein's compound interest. And the best part about this, and I'm gonna finish this whole thing. I'm sorry, I'm getting so excited about this. Remember I said when we said, we wanna put our money where the bank puts their money and they said they can't. All of you are still probably skeptical on this because you've heard whole life is a terrible thing. So I want to pose this last question. I want you to Google BOLI, B-O-L-I, it stands for Bank Owned Life Insurance. And what you will find out is the number one purchaser of whole life insurance in the world, bar none, is traditional banks. Look it up. Just Google it. Page number one, line number one will tell you that as of 2019, and maybe it's updated, as of 2019, Banks had, I and might hit this wrong, but about 191 to $193 billion in bully, bank-owned life insurance. Let me reframe that, whole life insurance. Why would the banks put their money in whole life if it's such a terrible place to store capital? Do you think they know something we don't? Or are banks just stupid and we know more than them? I'll let you guys figure that one out. Tell you what, man, success leaves clues. And so thank you for that. And, and I'll definitely invite the listeners to do their own research. I mean, at the end of the day, this is about financial education for your own action, your own effective action. The only way that we can take back control is to have an awareness, right? And so the first step is awareness. The next step is, all right, well, let's test it out ourselves in, in whatever capacity makes sense. But I think it's awesome that you can bring back this control and then you can utilize this, you know, as an as a vehicle for investing in real estate rather than using just straight cash, you can compound the returns in such a, in a bigger way. So I think it's really exciting. This is real financial education, in my opinion, that can fuel lasting freedom, right? And so this is, you know, exposing yourself to this type of information that may feel, you know, not mainstream, I think is important, right? So we can expose ourselves to, to more opportunities. But when you think of financial education, what else does it mean to you, Chris? I mean, is there, how else would you take it a step further? Yeah. So financial education can go on a lot of things, but really it just comes down to what is it that, that your goals are. And the other thing we need to do is we need to, before we get to financial education, we got to address the difference between success and failure, because that is a very real thing. What is the difference between a successful person and a person that has not succeeded to their level that they want to? And Earl Nightingale said it best in the strangest secrets of the, in the world. He said the only difference between success and failure is the successful created that's it. The, the ones, the unsuccessful, the you know, 95 percenters, I call them, they conformed. So the successful people of this world, the successful people, and it doesn't just mean wealth. I mean, success comes in many forms. Mindset, it, you, your success can be defined as money in your bank, car you drive, house you drive, your ability to you know, provide a good life for your children and your family. I mean, I'm not saying to you what success is. It's different for us all, but we all have to level up and understand what success is to us. And when we do that, we have to then create it. We have to create something that enables us to live that successful life that we have figured out the destination we'll call it too many people. And it saddens me. I mean, TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, I'm all over all of them. And I can't tell you how many people will never, ever, ever, 
do that one thing and that is create because what they do is the opposite they conform they conform to somebody's failed dreams to somebody else failed realities to somebody else failed destination when you conform you lose and you know the the different the only way to fail in life is to quit but i also like to add one more thing the other way to to fail in life is to conform to other quitters ways of doing things. So when you talk about success or financial, you know, knowledge and seeking this knowledge, you first need to understand what is your destination? Where are you going? The mindset is the most important thing. And no matter how much I can teach all of you and everybody about money and the truth about money and how to make money work for you, I cannot fix a broken mindset, nor Will I? You know, what was that one thing? Ain't nobody got time for that. Well, I don't have time for that either. Uh, so you got to fix your broken mindset. But once your mindset's fixed, then you're ready to accept. You're ready to actually learn the truth, which is going to be the opposite of everything you've ever learned your entire life, because what you've learned benefits everybody else, not you. You need to be a good steward of your money and stop thinking that the cavalry is coming to save you because they are not. So once you've got that, the world is yours. And I would suggest every single one of your listeners read a book that will completely lay out and, and explain to you what building wealth is. And that is the book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It's written in the 20s, but it was written about 903 BC, Babylon, the richest city in the world. But why were they so rich? Was it because they had, you know, the river right there? Was it they had gold? Well, they had all those things, but that's not why they were the richest. They were the richest because the richest man in Babylon was called in to you know, be before the king. And the king said to him, how did you become so rich? And actually was kind of, you know, bastardizing him a little bit, you know, about being so rich and almost kind of saying you're greedy, you know, like, like today, think about today. All oh, the rich are bad. The wealthy are greedy. They steal. They No, they don't. They are just informed. The rest of us are uninformed. That's the difference. So he, he sits there and he tells the king and he says, listen, this is how I've done it. And the king says, wait a second. So that's that's what you did. And that's how you became the richest man in Babylon. Would you be willing? Actually, he didn't ask if you would be willing. He just told him, I need you to teach our teachers at the center of learning how wealth works and how all of our citizens of Babylon can apply these things that you applied in your life to become the richest man. And he did. Arcot was his name. He went down, he taught the teachers six laws of gold. And those laws of gold then were taught to the disciples of those teachers and then their children and their, their children. And you see the cycle just continued. And now everybody else had the knowledge available to them and they could learn it. So the riches, the wealth that was found in the richest man in Babylon and in Babylon in general was simply because the people had access to the truth about wealth, the laws. There are laws. And I am writing a brand new book. It's going to be called The Laws of Wealth. It's a continuation of The Richest Man in Babylon brought to today's world. It is five laws of wealth in today's world and 10 rules of prosperity. If we operated under those pretenses and we got rid of greed and we got rid of the fact that we only get advice from people that are self-serving so they can make money, and we actually were just out there learning how the rich get rich, how the rich don't pay as much in taxes. I, and I hate saying rich because I think the rich people are paper rich and they're the next poor, but how wealthy stay wealthy and keep the money. If we just did that through centers of, centers of learning, we would be the richest country, which some people say we are, but it doesn't feel like that. We would be much richer than we are today. And it's all because of financial knowledge, but the truth and not something that serves others. So all of you should read The Richest Man in Babylon. You will understand what you need to do. 
But the laws, as simple as they are, are very difficult to apply simply because they violate what you've been taught your whole life, which leads me to say and ask you this question, is what you've been taught about money the truth or is it potentially a big lie? Man, that's so good. And and I think about as you kind of started that response with Earl Nightingale and the strangest secret in the world, what he talks about is that most people when they're 25 years old, like they, everybody wants to be a success. You know, there's no question in my mind, I'm going to be a success. And then when you look back at 65, 95% were not yes. 95% are broke. And only 5% are successful and only one is wealthy. Right. And it's just, it's mind blowing to really think about, and it comes down to that conformity and what's the difference of that. It's, it's creation. It's, it's not conforming. It's about questioning, you know, conventional wisdom. We're talking about conventional wisdom around money and around wealth. So let's question that and let's look in the other direction because there may be truth in that direction. And then I think about success. It's like, you know, Earl Nightingale defines it as the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. And so we'll put oh, links dude, in the show <laughs> notes as to where the listeners can find the strangest secret in the world, because it's critical. It's one that you should listen to as many times as possible to change the way that you view things, because it all starts in our mind. It all starts right here. Year. And so that's why I think it's so critical for us to talk about mindset and talk about education and talk about, you know, what are we doing to feed our minds? Because that's where it begins. That's the, you know, the acres of diamonds again. So I won't, I won't continue to, to repeat on this, but I also will put a link in the show notes to where the listeners can find the richest man in Babylon. Great read as well. I can't wait to to get your book as well, Chris, coming out here soon. But Chris, this has been amazing. I want to transition. I want to uh, shift into the rapid fire section of the podcast. It's called the rare air questionnaire. I tell you what, it, it goes without saying, this has been a rare conversation. This has been a non-conformist type of conversation where we are creating a new future through opening the minds of what is possible. So let's talk about a few things. You just mentioned a book here. I'll, I'll go through a few quick questions for you. Uh, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years what would those be and why think and grow rich by napoleon hill richest man in babylon and you know this is going to sound like a funny one but the power of zero mm, i love it i love it well i will uh, we'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find each of those books as well chris what is the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis solve other people's problems i spend so much of my time giving to other people unconditionally and that is how that elevates me. If I'm having a bad day, man, I will, I will literally find somebody that needs something needs 10 bucks, or I'll find a, a company that needs donations like 10 lives club. And I will write a check. It instantly brings a whole different aura over your body and your mind. And that is the, what's well, the law. It's the law of giving. I mean, if you give, you get, but you can't focus on the gift. Man, I tell you what, it never ceases to amaze me when I ask that question. So many times people who are like yourself, who are doing amazing things in this world, will talk about how they're elevating others when that really elevates themselves. But my next question would be, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? Is there anything that you would take that a step further on? Biggest way I elevate others around me is uh, I just try to be a good leader in demonstrating and leading from the front. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, when we put an event on here one day, I had a suit on and our toilet started overflowing. Instead of just saying, hey, Sean, a hand or hey, somebody else, go do that toilet. I grabbed the plunger and I did it myself. And listen, I didn't even think about it. But, you know, I lead from the front, not the back. 
And I guess that's how I bring people up is people see that energy. They see that I'm willing to go out there and do what most leaders or what most, I don't want to call them bosses, may be unwilling to do because they're the boss. Why would you go plunge a toilet that has you know raw sewage in it with a suit on? Well, because it needs to get done. That's why. And you're not above anything, folks. You're not above going out and shoveling pig crap from a pig pen if it's needed to be done. Lead from the front, not the back. Chris, I want to acknowledge you for being a nonconformist, for leading in the fact that, you know what, while we live in a world where most people want to conform and maybe that's the natural tendency, you're showing us that we don't have to and we should not. In fact, we should not conform. We should question everything that we've learned, whether it's about money, whether it's about success, philosophy, life outlook, uh, business and so forth. So I just want to acknowledge you for that. I want to thank you so much for being an amazing guest on Elevate. Is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Yeah, two things. Uh, a quote that Will Rogers said that I think is one of the most profound quotes. He said that the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. He said the biggest problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't. So don't think you know what just ain't. So folks go out there, create and find things. And I'll, I'll give a gift. You know, I, I've had a lot of fun here. So, you know, all the stuff that we talked about, I, I've got three books that I've written, uh, but I want everybody to have them for free. Mapping out the millionaire mystery, this new booklet, 68 pages, teaches you how to get all the money back for all the cars you're ever going to buy, drive, and own. And my other book, Private Money Guide, you can get them all for free. Just go to chrisnoggle.com. And remember that 90-minute video that I talked about that I watched that changed my life? Well, all of you should do the same thing. When you go to chrisnoggle.com, a 90-minute video will pop up. Save it and watch it and watch how that transforms your life. It's Boom. not selling you anything. It's just teaching you. I love it, man. Well, Chris, thank you so much, man. I can't, I cannot wait for our continued friendship and, and learning together and growing together and challenging each other. But I just encourage the listener to definitely take Chris up on his offer there. Go check out chrisnoggle.com. We'll put a link in the show notes as to where you can find that as well as his books. And um, you definitely want to engage with this content. Chris, until next time, my friend, thank you so much for being on Elevate. Thank you, man. It was an honor and a privilege. Elevate Nation. What an amazing conversation with a great Chris Noggle. And I can tell you that there is so much to learn just from the example that he sets and just questioning conventional wisdom around money, around what we've learned about philosophy, about what we've learned about just the way that the world works. Because I think when we continue to peel back this onion, we start to see the truth. And I want to encourage you um, to really think about what was talked about today. I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show because this was pretty in depth in terms of how things work and how, you know, lessons that Chris learned along his journey. I think there is a lot to be said. I've, I've dug into this concept pretty deeply myself. Uh, I am looking forward to applying it myself. I'm actually in process of setting up my own banking concept. And so I think it's something that I would, you know, encourage you to look into. I don't have any, um, any way of sort of, you know, capitalizing on that. It's just, you know, my own gift to you to say, Hey, look, I'm trying this out. I'll be happy to share with you how things are working in terms of how that works with me being my own bank and, and how that applies to my own real estate investing, how that applies to my own consumption patterns and how that creates even additional wealth creation. But I think ultimately the principles of what we learned today are, are almost the most important. Uh, it's learning the truth about money learning the truth about control and, and keeping and gaining that control of your own money and utilizing money, um, you know, velocity, because that's what can create accumulation. And look, there's clues when the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Carnegie's and Walt Disney and all of these other amazing individuals and these 
really generational wealth families have utilized. We got to pay attention. So instead of waking up and being a conformist, let's wake up and pay attention and create amazing futures and create a future of freedom for our family, uh, for the people that we care about and for other people around us. So let's be a leader. Elevate Nation, I want to encourage you to identify your top three, one, two, or three takeaways from this episode. Share those with someone else. Share those with a friend. Pay it forward. Because ultimately, you know what, if we share and we have discourse and we discuss with other people, we can learn more and it's the right thing to do because instead of being scarce, we can enjoy abundance when we share with other people. And when we step into questioning conventional wisdom, we can then learn about the abundance on the other side of that. And so I want to encourage you to not only re-listen and discuss, but take massive action. What is it? What is one thing you're compelled to take massive action on today? Put that on the calendar or go ahead and act now immediately. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.